1: Welcome to Techno Roll, a special Let It Roll maxi-series on the history of DJs, disco, and electronic dance music, hosted by Nate Wilcox and Ryan Harkness. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter, at Let It Roll Cast, and check out our website at Podcast.com. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.PantheonPodcast.com. Nate uses AKG microphones and headphones. Today, Nate and Ryan continue their discussion of Last Night a DJ Saved My Life, the history of the disc jockey by Bill Brewster and Frank Broughton. This week's episode focuses on the wave of superstar DJs that emerged in the 21st century. Email us at podcast at gmail.com. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy.
0: It's time to let it roll, or should I say techno roll. I'm your host, Nate Wilcox, joined once again by my co-host, Ryan Hartness to continue our discussion of Bill Brewster and Frank Broughton's Last Night, A DJ Saved My Life, The History of the Disc Jockey. And this time, we're going to be talking about their chapter, their penultimate chapter, Superstar, in which DJs
2: get really, really big. Ryan. Yeah, it's fun because they go outlaw- superstar, sellout. And I like that. Oh. I like that progression. It's, it's,
0: yeah. Although sometimes you would think it would go outlaw, sellout, superstar, but I guess, I guess not. Uh, not in this case. I mean, and, you know, they open the chapter with a, with a scene of the Dutch DJ, DJ Chesto, and correct me any of these pronunciations I get wrong, I am. An unreformed yokel, um, but he—he, he, they talk about him playing the Olympic opening ceremonies in Greece in 2004 as kind of a—I mean, by the time of an artist from a genre is playing the, the opening ceremonies of the Olympics, you're on beyond established and into the academy, and—and and it's funny because this genre had not. Still at this point, two thousand four had not really broken through in the states. It would in just a few years, but it is worldwide established, especially in Europe.
2: Well, it's interesting. I think we we we're going to touch on it a little bit once we get into the EDM movement, you know, from two thousand ten onwards. But uh, the book kind of credits that to small regional uh, scenes in Europe, allowing things to kind of naturally bubble up, bubble up while there's more of a monoculture being pushed by like the, the monopsonies that control all media in America. So unless you get that kind of blessing from them and you get some playing playment on, uh, some, some placement on clear channel, then you're, you're not really going to break through until the powers that be let you break through or until the internet gets big enough and enough people get cell phones and they start, you know, it's, it becomes more of a, a pull instead of a push for as far as the musical economy goes.
0: And that's, yeah, that's eventually what happens in the late knots. But another factor I think that happened is that the nature of pop music changed. And this is something I've been charting on other episodes of the series. I think that when Barry Gibb produced Barbara Streisand in the early eighties, that's when Pop figured out how to deal in a post-rock world. And through the nineties with, you know, Mariah Carey and Whitney Houston and Celine Dion, and then Max Martin comes along and it figures out just how to absorb everything. And hip hop kind of displaced this rock at around the same time. And hip-hop and pop have this pretty comfortable alliance where people like P. Diddy can hop back and forth and guest on tracks, you know, by people like Madonna and vice versa. So that a big part of this is also EDM producers are producing the backing tracks for songs sung by pop performers, frequently co-written by pop performers. So the, you know, it's not just that the states was so big and it would take months for a single to break through, whereas you could get on the Belgian charts with an independent release in a couple of weeks. It's also that the pop Monster became so omnivorous that it could absorb EDM and overcome. I mean, the fact that EDM is an instrumental genre, it's a dance genre, and the American pop market, at least, is relentlessly singer focused um, and and song focused. So, I think I think. You know, it's just kind of a matter of the pop machine needing new stuff after it already chewed through all these hip-hop producers and not to take anything away from EDM, which certainly, you know, I think earned its place in the in the celestial firmament, but um yeah just just a complicated blend and Tiesto's success is is just staggering you know the first dj to fill a 25,000 seat stadium uh sold 50,000 tickets for a gig in 90 minutes he gets knighted in Holland or he's a member of the order of the orange Nassau which is equivalent to a knighthood i mean
2: yeah, yeah. With, with a lot of these guys, I mean, uh, we, we talked about this in past episodes, how Paul Oakenfold, you know, I, I didn't understand back when I was uh, just, a, just a kid reading MixMag why it was such a big deal. But then you find him at the epicenter of, of all these important moments in dance music pushing everything forward. Tiesto is one of these guys that, you know, it's hard to put a finger on. He, he doesn't have that Paul Van Dyke uh, track, uh, like Foreign Angel or something like that that, that was uh key to his growth. He doesn't he doesn't have um any any of these places in history where he was the first or the best but he is basically the guy that that the the magazines or the culture like like mix mag and, and 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 everything like that pushed as ass the next big thing and he became that so he's really a media kind of maybe not created entirely obviously but he's definitely the uh, there there was an echo chamber of the media putting him on the cover and People going, oh my god, Tiësto, and then it just feeding back over and over and over until all of a sudden he's opening the Olympic ceremonies.
0: Yeah, and I mean, if you put on a show for twenty five thousand people and most of them have a good time, that's a lot of good word of mouth, and you know more people are going to come back for your next show. So yeah, it sort of becomes a self licking ice cream at a certain point. Of the pop machine is so powerful, not just in the states but all around, um, you know, the so called first world that somebody like Tiesto can, and nothing against him, but somebody like Tiesto can just achieve this level of fame that, I mean, can you imagine Francis Grasso, what he would think that <laughs> he lived to see it? I mean, you know, it's just, or even Larry Levin, you know, like, um, this level of fame, and fortune was not even something that you could have imagined in the 60s and 70s when these guys were inventing uh, the art of, of beat matching and blending and making the DJ a musical artist. So, And they and the authors trace this to the 90s when uh, British DJs start becoming superstars and you get people like Norman Smith, a.k.a. Fatboy Slim and throw some of his other aliases at, at me.
2: Uh, pizza man. Uh, he was part of the house Martins as well. I know he's got like a a couple, uh, that he was releasing like small, small stuff on like record labels here and there. I don't have a full list in front of me, but he, he was, you know, for somebody who, uh, kind of seemed to come out of nowhere in America with the Rockefeller skank and annoy the shit out of everybody with that one. Uh, I Yeah, I, I I dug it too. His all of his albums are great, if like a little bit, uh, you know, if you listen to them, you might get a headache by the end of it, maybe. But uh, I mean, he's been around for a while, and he's been working really hard. So uh, he's one of those guys that seems like an overnight sensation, with maybe even like a one or two hit wonder. But you know, in the underground scene, he's been doing a lot of work for a lot of long time.
0: Yeah. And he seems like he's somebody who's still accessible because they talk to him and get quotes from him and use him as, you know, the source of the DJ that's scratching his head going, you know, how did this happen to the little old me? And they, you know, he's talking about how the money is just stupid. Like he... he he doesn't think he's a hundred times more valuable or a hundred times better than a DJ that's maybe making 50 bucks or a hundred bucks. And, you know, he's getting in the four or five, six figures for a show. And they talk about him turning down like David Letterman in Saturday Night Live uh, when in the peak of his American commercial acceptance in the late 90s and early knots. Um, and yeah, and he's one of these guys who was marketed at least as fat boy slim as sort of a rock Artists. They weren't saying he's playing rock and roll, but he had full-length CDs. He had videos. He um, was interviewed in places like Spin and and covered in Rolling Stone and and you know so very much fit plug. They figured out how to plug that generation of big beat artists into the American album machine in the '90s, and, and Fatboy Slim was one of the beneficiaries of it. And you know then they also talk about Danny Rampling, who was a DJ at Shroom, one of the big London clubs, and and his discomfort with being worshiped you know he's like people were comparing me to Jesus <laughs> it was really weird you know and 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 that you know this is a phenomenon that really Took root in the 90s. And it's so much the antithesis of what the scene was like in the 70s, you know, when David Mancuso's at the loft, it was about the crowd. It was about the dancing. And the DJ was pretty anonymous. And, you know, Norman Smith's got a quote in here where he's saying, you know, when I started out, the DJ was just above the guy who picked up the glass bottles at the end of the night. You know, he's just the guy in the corner flipping records over. And, you know, part of it
2: go ahead for, for all that. I mean, David Mancuso still gets, uh, tons of recognition for, for what he did. Larry Levan, obviously as well. So, uh, you know, there's, I think it's kind of an economy of scale thing where, where back in the day, it was just a, a much smaller group that was in the know. And, uh, you know, the, the people, people were still giving these guys, uh, their props, but it was only in these specific circumstances where you had like a Mancuso or, or a Levan or a Frankie knuckles or Frankie bones, uh, with with their with their little church and uh it being their being their god to this small group of people it, it it always was being there it just grows in scale
0: yeah and it and it gets there's something about the nature of human beings that like i remember when craigslist was new in the late 90s and basically if you met somebody over craigslist you were probably going to have a Positive experience just because of the kind of person who had discovered Craigslist. Like people who are on the cutting edge sometimes can be really nasty, but generally are brighter and, and more personal. And now you go to Craigslist and it's like 99% chance it's a scam, you know? And like, no, I'm not going to meet you at the parking lot at midnight. And so you just sort of get a different, as you get waves of popularity, by the time you've got 50,000 people in the stadium, you know. A lot of normies are in there. <laughs> a lot of sort of and I don't want to be super elitist, but you know, a lot of people that are not that hip, not that bright, not that nice. Uh you get the full spectrum of humanity in there. And so when you get things like Sasha, another British DJ from the nineties, you know, he's on the cover of Mix Mag with son of God question mark underneath them and and I thought it was appropriate that they had a quote from Eric Clapton at the beginning of this chapter where somebody's like you know you're the coolest you're the guitar hero and this is from the late 90s he's like no 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 the DJ is cool now the guitar is dead and this was exactly the kind of crap that Eric Clapton had to put up with in the 60s where they would spray paint Clapton as God all over London and stuff and so yeah this urge to worship artists seems to me to be unique to the 20th century or I mean maybe starting with Franz Liszt, but, you know, historically artists were pariahs. Like, you know, the king would have the minstrels and the actors come perform for him, but then they were sent away with the servants. And, and you know, in the 19th century, uh, even the most famous actors and singers were not socially... Elite. They might be welcome to the White House, but it was kind of a freak show thing. They were not going to be in the back room uh, later with the big the big players in the way that celebrities are now. So, yeah, it's 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 uh, a fascinating era that this music had to go through. And they they mentioned Jellybean Benitez as as kind of a precursor of this cult of celebrity. Uh, You know, he was a DJ at Funhouse in New York in the '80s. He dated Madonna, uh, produced a, a lot of hit records, but he was somebody. He's the guy I think that. People had T-shirts that say, you know, last night, Jelly Bean saved my life in the 80s, which probably inspired,
2: helped inspire this title. Yeah, one of those early guys that put all the different pieces together and had a big enough of a scene for, for that to kind of catch some momentum.
0: Yeah, and I'm way behind on my song cues. Steph, Steph's going to slap me for this. But let's hear a little bit of what Tiesto played, uh, the, his Olympic flame song from 2004. This is what he helped open the uh, Greek, the Athens Olympics in 2004. This is Tiesto. And that was Tiesto christening the Olympics with Olympic Flame, 2004 in Athens. And and the book talks about how one of the factors that went into raising the profile of the of the DJs and also changing the economics of DJs was the guest DJ phenomenon and visiting American DJs in particular. Uh, once the acid house scene broke through in England, which was the first time. Since disco in the late '70s, that dance music really broke through to the pop mainstream in a major market. And England, since the Beatles, has been the world's leading exporter of youth culture. They, and they talk about this—the way that they're really great at sort of laundering youth culture. They'll take what what Black Americans were doing, and uh, repackage it with with white Britons doing it, and then sell it to the whole planet. And you know, when that happened with acid house, that same pattern of connoisseurship and worship of black Americans or admiration of black Americans fit perfectly in there. So they would bring over, and also because of the economics of it, because there was more money being generated in Britain than there was in the States, it was easy to get the Belleville Three to come over. It was easy to get Frankie Knuckles, and it was quite affordable, and it was money that somebody like Todd Terry or Tony Humphreys was like, wow, this is a good payday. Yeah, I'm getting on the plane and going over there. But they talk about the way it denigrated the art of the DJ, where instead of settling in for a whole night or a set of several hours at a club where you can really build and really tell a story, they'd come in for a couple, you know, a 90 minute set, which pressured them to just play their most banging hits and, and really make a, a, a cheap splash. What's yeah. your take on that? Do you feel like it?
2: Well, this is this is kind of a I I don't know when this happened and the book doesn't really talk about it too much, but there's there's two different classes of DJs and there's the DJ who is basically like the club DJ who who plays and is, is used to playing and is expects to play, you know, opening to close uh, and then, then you have uh, basically what kind of came about in club culture and rave culture which was the, the set DJs who come to play two hours uh, maybe if you got one of the old school house guys or something like or like a progressive trance guy maybe three hours and then oh my god they're going to put it on the flyer. he's playing four hours you know uh, DJing at the bar down the road like I do I play for six hours like every Friday Saturday when I was doing that so it's, it's a very a very different thing Um, and it's funny how that kind of switch happened. And, and there's lots of DJs who just can't play all night. Like there's a lot of DJs, a lot of big name DJs who have maybe 90 minutes of material ready to go at any given time in an order that they're comfortable mixing with. So it's, uh, I I could see how you could say that denigrates the practice of DJing because it's a completely different game. And, you know, the book kind of says, if If these guys aren't coming in and checking out the vibe of the crowd and sitting there and feeling it and getting ready and picking the specific track for this crowd, then they're they're not really djing. and And to a certain degree, I can say, yeah, sure. But on the other hand, when you hit this headliner status, you're no longer a dJ who has to read the room and decide what people are going to like. People are coming to see you. They've heard your mixes. They know what to expect. And and you're just expected to give it to them. So you don't need, you know, ask ass like Paul Oakenfold, he knows what he's going to play before he shows up. Well, I if I go to uh, another city where, you know, my promoter friends have booked me, but nobody knows me. I need to sit there and I need to figure out who's playing before me, what this crowd is. Will they throw like beer bottles at me if I play like happy hardcore, like it, it, but, but you know, it's different, different rules for different levels of DJs and different, uh, different styles of DJing for different styles of situations. So I can definitely see their point, but it's not a blanket statement for sure.
0: Yeah. I, I think that's a pretty good, good way to put it. And, um, and I would be curious, like I'd I'd like to at some point have the time to go back and like compare a Frankie Knuckles set from, you know, Chicago in the 80s of the warehouse to something that he did in the 90s in England or something he did, uh, you know, in the knots in Japan or something like that. And just see, try to hear if, if I can pick up on that and if it seems like it's been cheapened or not. Something tells me it won't be, you know, like I feel like. A lot of these guys cultivated their brand, built it over decades and maintained it, you know, Um, something like Tony Humphreys, maybe he wasn't on the cutting edge after a certain period, but he, um, you know, was kind of like the Rolling Stones. You go see a Rolling Stones show, you know what you're going to get and you kind of rely on them to bring it in a professional manner and, and in a manner that won't embarrass or, you know, denigrate their legacy. And it was funny, they had a story about a guy, Junior Vasquez of Sound Factory, who, was the last holdout, or one of the last holdouts, of big-profile American DJs who would just not come to the come to Europe or the UK, and um, and holds out until 1997. And I imagine with the big beat boom that was going on, that the money just kept getting ridiculous. You know, the money must have been really good
2: by the time he finally went over there. But they said that he kind of missed his moment. by the time he went over there, yeah, uh, he probably lost out on a lot of international. Uh acclaim and stuff like that. Junior Vasquez, obviously, uh, still very respected. He's one of those guys that's like on half the records coming out of like the the late 80s, early 90s. Whenever they needed a house remix, they'd go to him because he he was one of those guys that had, uh, you know, the sound factory in New York. So he he had a, a stronghold and he decided to stay there. And I'm sure he made a lot of money doing it. But, you know, uh, I doubt you're going to find a lot of fans of his over in Europe because he didn't internationalize. And uh, it might have, you know, might have seemed like a, a smart choice at the time or maybe just a, a decision based on the fact that he didn't like flying or something.
0: Yeah. Yeah. You never know until you really look into the details of the, these things, but timing is critical and um, yeah, highly likely that cost him. And then there's the second wave of, of American DJs that they talk about Armin Van Helden, Danny Tenaglia, Josh Wink, Roger Sanchez, who come over in the nineties and, and, you know, play Japan, play Germany, play England, um, play Ibiza. Um, maybe even Goya, some of them, and, and you know, hit that circuit and travel. And, and the economics were still the same thing. It, there was much more money to be made in this music outside of America than there was in America. And then once the Criminal Justice Act and the Rave Act and things like that happened, then, then it's really um, uh, even more incentive for them to hit the road. But, but I kind of jumped ahead of myself. I want to go ahead and play another song. I'm a little... Jamming these kind of close together, but I was so late on the first one. But this is um, Norman Smith, aka Fatboy Slim. But this is when he was Pizza Man. Uh, Norman Cook. uh, Norman Cook, sorry, sorry. What'd I call him, Slim? Uh, Um, Smith. Smith, yes. Norman Cook, sorry. Thank you for catching that. This is Trippin' on Sunshine from 1992. So this is kind of more the underground side of Norman Cook before he broke through big. This is um, Trippin' on Sunshine by Pizza Man. And that was "Tripping on Sunshine" from 1992 by Pizza Man, aka Fatboy Slim, Norman Cook. Um, yeah, and 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 this is a guy that his whole oeuvre, I think, is is well worth a listen. Like he he, there's a reason he got where he got, and 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 he made made good stuff. And and that early '90s stuff um, was well underground. Definitely not something I was hip to at the time here in the states but people in the scene in britain were or knowing pizza man by that point and,
2: and yeah i think i think one of the earlier chapters we talked about the fact that you know uh it made sense for the dj to become the producer because they understood they they saw firsthand what parts of music would would make the dance floor move and norman cook was one of these guys who took a uh, uh klf uh style approach to, to music where, you know, you just lift, you lift parts from other tracks, you, you lift elements and you lift grooves and you put them down together and you make something new out of it. And, uh, you know, he wasn't too, he wasn't too up his own ass about genre either. You can hear this one here kind of has that rave sound to it, but also a lot of house to it. And then is the, the, big beat stuff. He was never afraid, uh, even though technically, you know, electronica, he used a lot of real instrument, real instrument samples and stuff like that. And that's probably a part they kind of talk about in the book, how a lot of the first artists that broke through, broke through with electronic music that sounded more like rock music than electronic music.
0: Yeah, that was definitely true in the case of Fatboy Slim. And then they have a section called Marketing the Star DJ. And they they talk about the way the industry needs stars. It's so much easier to – people relate to stories and people relate to people. They want to identify. And that's why disco – was sort of so easily co-opted by artists like the Bee Gees, who came in a little bit late. And I'm not knocking the Bee Gees, but they came in late. They had the whole rock star apparatus behind them. And there were only a few disco artists like Donna Summer, to a lesser extent Barry White, that broke through as stars. But for the most part, the record industry was kind of confused by it. and And they had all these faceless studio groups, and they didn't know exactly how to market this stuff and it was one thing to get the village people on the merv griffin show lip-syncing but um you know mfsb was a little bit of a different proposition and and so many different you know you'd have the same producer who would be pulling out multiple projects under different names so it was a little bit harder to sell that and then after the disco backlash and and the implosion of dance music in the states you know people like larry levin really never got the chance to be marketed that way and and Acid House kind of changed the game and, and helped people like Frankie Knuckles and, and the Belleville Three get a little bit of star status. But around the same time, there was an effort on the part of the major labels in America to sign people like Jelly Bean as artists in their own right, to sign people like Frankie Knuckles as record producers. And for the most part, that stuff flopped. I mean, we talk about some of the exceptions like Soul to Soul and C2C Music Factory, but um, you know, they're had been a number of efforts to break, uh, EDM, uh, or, you know, house or techno as it was known at the time through. And even people like Rick Rubin failed to do that, went out and signed a whole bunch of DJs to produce records. And, and it just didn't click.
2: Well, I remember, it, I remember at the time it almost felt like, uh, anytime you had a group that was playing electronic music and they'd show up on stage and they obviously weren't playing, everybody would kind of say that they like, basically like, this is a, this is fraudulent. This is bullshit. And, uh, yeah. And, and, and I remember that as being the general vibe, like, and for, for a while there, there was, there was that long time. Uh, I mean, the, the question that this book is answering is DJing, even a legitimate musical form was still the, uh, prevalent thought up until you know halfway through to the, 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 the decade 2000. So I, I think it might have been you know, like y- you can only get so far in America with a picture of yourself just standing there with your hands in your pockets without a guitar slung on your back. It's just the way that the culture was at the time, and it wasn't just the, the, the music industry failing to do anything. It was uh, these artists failing to connect with uh, the mainstream.
0: Yeah, as somebody who's who went to dance clubs in that era, you know, the frequently you didn't even see the DJ. And then when you went and saw an electronic group live, like I remember seeing um KMFDM in a club and, the, you know, their records were pretty banging. Same experience with Skinny Puppy, where the records were loud and then you get and see them in the club and they just could not hang. I mean, I had seen Slayer or Jane's Addiction and even groups like Public Enemy in the early nineties, the sound system just were not delivering the big boom on, on that kind of stuff. And it wasn't until a group like Ministry had their synths synths and had their samples, but also had live drums, sometimes even two drummers, plus a live guitarist, live bass player, plus, you know, the vocal tracks pre-recorded, uh, as Al Jorgensen got exposed once in Dallas when he got mobbed by the crowd stage diving. But you know, so there was, I think, some technical limitations that you could just not bring as much volume from, um, you know, playing turntables and synths as you could from a full rock band. Until I'd say the mid '90s. By the late '90s, when I saw Public Enemy in '99, they were absolutely as booming as any rock band. And and, and that same thing um, with the Chemical Brothers, for example. I, I did not have that feeling, but yeah, I, I think that was a real thing. That kids that had grown up on heavy metal or hardcore punk or stadium. Rock would go see these bands and having heard their their records were expecting kind of a more immersive experience. And it was a little bit um frustrating and disappointing. But what they figured out, and and let's break, take a, a word from our sponsor and then talk about how the record industry finally figured out how to package DJs.
2: Oh, we're in for a long one. A long weekend, that is. And you deserve to spend it on the couch with a glass of something good. Luckily, there's Drizzly, the number one app for alcohol delivery. With Drizzly, you can compare prices on the biggest selection of beer, wine, and spirits, then get them delivered quickly. So download the Drizzly app or go to drizzly.com. That's D-R-I-Z-L-Y dot com today.
0: And so what they finally figured out to do was to put out CDs, and this was back when CDs were just selling. Nobody was buying singles anymore. Everybody was used to paying the 20 bucks for 20 songs even if they only wanted one song and they would initially it was live mix albums it's what the dj uh guys had been trying to do since the 70s and the record companies would not work with them was just record the set i want to get my fades i want to get the mixes and the blends that i did and the beat matching let's hear what this artist created live and that becomes really successful like people Pete Tong's Essential Mix series is big. The Ministry of Sound, the big club in London, put out the Ministry Annual. And it was, you know, it was getting to where I was doing half a million CDs. And very quickly, kind of, I don't want to say the rot sets in, but the. Yeah, the business takes over, and it got to the point where some djs were basically just putting their names on compilations and so it was right back to what the record industry had been doing before, except they were cutting in the d j this time, but they're not really documenting the artistry of the craft
2: yeah it's interesting to see the snapshot uh, in the book where it talks about uh, you know a, a track on a well selling compilation can pull in thirty five thousand pounds in royalties. Uh, for that one track and it's uh it blows my mind because obviously in the day of, of spotify we understand how the entire uh industry is being completely cannibalized uh, what as soon as the physical format was removed from the equation uh you know even when the physical format was around there was a, a select few getting money but at least there was a few getting money and nowadays it seems like uh unless you're one of the major labels that has a a, a deal with spotify to suck up most of the subscription money all these smaller players just get and that fraction of a penny per play—that's all that's left.
0: Yeah, it's it's a very different economics than than there were in the 90s when an innovative producer could self-produce cds and sell them out of the trunk of their car and and you saw that at raves uh you know and and hip-hop shows and and heavy metal and punk too there was this whole underground economy that could be financed by selling physical artifacts of the music that is just gone um and as somebody who lived through the 90s it it doesn't seem like that long ago but it's a completely different environment now
2: yeah, I watched it all switch over basically, you know, around 2000 was when MP3s really started kicking off and, uh, you know, the destruction of a bunch of labels, obviously we were bringing in artists who, who ran their own labels and they were not happy about the whole situation. And it was just the, the, nobody was selling MP3s because they didn't want to further, you know, uh, just put the gun to their head and pull the trigger and, and finish the job off. Uh, but it was, it was, it was rough for a bunch of these guys who were, were used to making, you know, 10,000 plus dollars on, on a on a vinyl release all of a sudden not having that but that being said with the extended amount of uh publicity that you get from your track now being available everywhere all the time instantly uh djing really picked up as far as the same way that real musicians have to tour well real musicians the, the <laughs> same way the, the same way bands and have to DJ tour <laughs> now djs can and do do that and make a ton of money doing that. So, you know, in a way they're just put into the same, uh, economic situation as all musicians have been for, you know, for a long time.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So I just, you know, things change, things stay the same in the cycle. And, and I, I teased this a little earlier, but they have a, a section on, they call super clubs and global brands. And this is where, the fruits of the british 1994 criminal justice act or the 2003 rave act um in the states come home is is once these raves are criminalized then that creates this opportunity for le- quote unquote legitimate clubs to emerge in places like ministry of sound and tra- first trade a gay club in london and the ministry of sound bring the all night dancing to london and you know london For decades was just infamous for closing down at 9 30 or 10 o'clock at night you know maybe even 11 you know the the quote-unquote after hours club was something like the speakeasy where oh boy the beatles could stay out till midnight and listen to records you know but the you know we talked about this in the in the 80s scene and a big part of the switchover from uh, rare groove and and jazz funk to acid house was this Let's go to a where, empty warehouse. Let's go to an empty field and party all night, and you know, and doing these drugs and, and staying up all night. And eventually, the business adapted, and and the the clubs were now open all night. And and there's kind of a return in the '90s. And we talked about it with Speed Garage a little bit. But there's all these clubs where the fashion aspect returns. And so we talked about you know like the new romantic scene being a big part of. Created sort of an elitist vibe in the club scene in Britain in the 80s that kind of held it back and that was overthrown by acid house. But once again, this changeover happens again. You know, it's just sort of like coins flipping it back and forth. You know, every every time you have a revolution, that that's setting the seeds for the next revolution to overturn that. And so I had clubs like Malibu, Stacey, Billion Dollar Babies, Renaissance in Manchester, the Vague in, in Leeds, Cream in Liverpool. Uh, Ministry of Sound colonizing Ibiza, um, and and then you get this weird phenomenon where they call it personality jocks, where it's people like Boy George, who's you know famous as a singer for the Culture Club, um, becoming DJs. And I think in Boy George's case, he's a legit
2: DJ. But then yeah, he the- was he was a DJ before he was even in the band.
0: Yeah. And, and so he could do it. He could play. But by the time you get certain like porn star Tracy Lords or various boxers or God forbid Paris Hilton and P. Diddy who are paying a real DJ to do it while they're being billed as the DJ, it's just. Uh,
2: now, Paris uh, yeah. is still around, and 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 she's still around DJing, and as is the debate over whether or not she's really mixing. I think maybe I think maybe she has somebody there just in case she's not like you know not up to it at the time. But uh, I mean, I figure at this point, what is it, ten years in? She probably knows how to, you know. She's doing uh, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But well, we got you know. Yeah, we got Idris Elba and Elijah Woods and and Polly, you know, on on the on the nicer Frodo. more respectable. Yeah, we we actually I would like to see Elijah Woods DJ cuz I like him. See, so yeah, I'm on that side. Then you got, you know, on the on the nastier side, you got like Polly D from Jersey Shore, and I'm sure there's a whole bunch of other reality stars that are yeah. that are out there. I know that there's a bunch from RuPaul's Drag Race. All of a sudden, you get to, you know, double dip on on that uh you can be the, you get the, your drag queen money, which is quite good money, and then you got your DJ fee too and you need get to double dip on those nights and that's really good
0: yeah and with um, you know the the way the modern studio works with autotune and everything else you can just be a whole self-licking ice cream with n- cone with no talent whatsoever you know you just Millie the whole way down uh, you know do autotune your vocals get max Martin in to write your song go out on the road as a DJ I mean it's 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 a pretty interesting era with the amount of artifice that that is allowed. And I mean, and these days, would we even consider Millie Vanelli a scandal? Um, I think they'd probably just admit that they were just the front and that they had somebody else doing the singing at this point and just be treated like artists.
2: Yeah, um, they got they got really thrown under the bus unfairly. And it's uh, it's pretty unfortunate. But uh, to, yeah. to step back one step to, to how everything kind of changed in the UK dance scene and how everything got really classy again, there's an important element of that that needs to be brought up. And that's the fact that with uh, you know, with with the abandoning of, of, of the crusty rave culture, they really left that behind. And there was a vibe of good riddance uh, ravers, you know, felt the same way because we embraced the counterculture and underground nature of the music and events. So we didn't really want to participate in that. But it was kind of a good thing because now you have you know, we got our thing. I got my thing, the rave thing. And then in the clubs, you 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 have a scene that ended up being completely absorbed by business marketers. And it's not a terrible thing because. When Heineken was was throwing around five to ten thousand dollars for themed parties, I've, I was you know I was right there and I said give me that money and it definitely <laughs> it definitely helped out you know there there's yeah. something to be said and I think when we get into the EDM when when we're talking about like the festivals from 2000 to 2010, electronic music didn't stand on its own feet it only it only managed to survive because in the UK you know you had banks phone companies uh like uh, energy drinks uh you know every single hip young uh, company looking to market to that all eternal 18 to like 26 year old marketing scheme they were all there pumping money into the dance music scene and that's where the money came to keep it stood up and that's that's what came over to America as well when electronic music couldn't stand on its own two feet. But you had, you know, Virgin Media, Virgin Mobile, all these companies like putting all that money into the UK and saying, this is going to work in the US. We just and even if it doesn't, we're still hitting the people that we want to hit. We're still getting that, that exact segment of the marketing pie that we want. So, I mean, uh, you know we we live in a consumerist world. this is everything is just ridiculous fake advertising dollars. So you just kind of have to accept that and and one of the good things that came out of it was you know uh, how big the u k scene got and how how ridiculously over the top. It became, it, beca- it became, and a lot of that was because, not because of the money that you were paying at the door, not that that wasn't substantial, but because there was a lot of money being paid by cigarette companies and, 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 and alcohol sponsors just to, you know, give everybody that extra bit.
0: Yeah. Your friends looking out for you, making sure you get that good stuff you need. And let's, the next song was going to kind of jump ahead in our narrative a little bit, but this is um, a track from the Knots. When the EDM scene is bubbling under in the States, it's conquered the world, and artists like Dead Mouse, and this is a, a track Dead Mouse featuring Rob Swire, Ghosts and Stuff, this is the sound of EDM knocking at the door of the American pop market. I
2: feel, it, I feel at home, feel like nothing is
1: true She took me to a place where my senses gave way Shut in down, what the people say Let me kill in time, let him give you some. Take medal, let it come, let it come, let it come. Take it back when she knows that
0: you're doing it right. Canada's Dead Mouse featuring Rob Swire doing ghosts and stuff. And we'll we'll talk about that in a minute, but first let's talk about this what they call the global export of dance culture. And they talk about, you know, like um British DJ Sasha going to China and being treated like a real pop star, like the I wouldn't say the Beatles, but something like that. I mean, with so many people in China, if you if you activate that audience, yeah, you can start feeling like a superstar in in a real short order of time. And this is where they talk about, you know, Britain really perfecting their role as the global exporter of youth culture. And by this point, the Brits the Brits are selling their own stuff. It's very much like the later part of the British invasion. You know, by the time you get Led Zeppelin and Deep Purple and stuff, they're so far removed from their original American sources. So that by the late '90s, we've talked about Fatboy Slim, but you also had the Chemical Brothers, the Prodigy, you know, Paul Oakenfold. You had America's own Moby, who was getting a push. The record companies kind of figured out a way to sell this stuff in America and really put a big push behind it. And even though the Prodigy did sell records, their videos did get played, squares like me were aware of them, they didn't make it huge. And and there was a feeling like, you know, we tried and tried and this stuff is just not ever going to be as big in America as it is in the, in the rest of the world.
2: Yeah. And it's, uh, And again, it it comes down to the fact that to a certain degree, there's a monoculture in the U.S. Uh, All the radio stations are owned by the same people. So you can't have what you had in the U.K., which was a bunch of pirate radio stations pushing the sound all across a small island. You've got uh, all these states that are physically massive and they all have, you know, either weird AM radio stations with with preachers talking hellfire or they have uh, this uh, you know, whatever is hot at the time, and no deviation because these radio stations aren't. You know, if if you're going to pivot, they're going to they're going to rebrand the entire station. So these are not light on their feet looking for the next big thing. These are there are formats. These are the formats that make money, and we are going to hammer this until the wheels come off. It is not it's not a place where creativity is is going to flourish.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And the 1996 Communications Act is what allowed companies like Clear Channel to just create these, you know, it was like an algae bloom on the airwaves. They just totally took over the radio stations and shrank the playlists. You know, you had radio stations in North Dakota that were getting their music piped in, uh, you know, from Shreveport, Louisiana and stuff like that. And and, and it, it made it that much harder for new stuff to break through in the 90s. But in the knots, things are finally happening. And, and, and um, you know, because of the festival circuit and because of homegrown DJs, I mentioned Sandra Collins, Christopher Lawrence, The Crystal Method. All these people are are slogging it out, um, dealing with the collapse of the rave scene and the change in laws. Where they keep keep playing, keep building their audience. Um, you get things like the Winter Music Conference in Miami that that changes so it moves to Spring Break uh, in 2000 and, and brings a big thing. The Detroit Techno Fest, Detroit, the city of Detroit finally gets on board with techno and starts pushing it as a as a something to celebrate as part of their cultural legacy of the city. And that fest is a
2: big deal. Yeah, and um, it's only possible because the car companies put a lot of money into that. That's another one of those ones that, that really only existed because uh, corporate sponsorship came in and footed the bill at first.
0: Yeah. And and, you know, I'm all for it. I think that the the whole baby boomer tension about, oh, don't be a sellout, you know, be the Beatles. Don't be the monkeys. I think we put all that past this. This is we finally admitted this is late capitalism. Everybody's in it for the money get some money get some exposure
2: yeah and- when it trickles down man like dance under it <laughs> it doesn't yeah. trickle down that much if you can get <laughs> if, if you can connect a pipe to that trickle then then don't say no because you can do stuff with it that you know it's uh, yeah. let them let them hang themselves with their own rope and and funding the counterculture go for it that's to me that's more punk than than, than turning your nose up at it is taking their money and putting on something that does not help them at all?
0: <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. And, and also the internet, you know, we talked about how the internet took the money away from the CD business, but it also opened things up so that American kids started hearing things. And dubstep was really the genre that, um, well, they call it the first dance genre of the connected era. And, and it breaks through and and people like Skrillex, uh, and, and others, you know, Steve Aoki and others, get quite famous on this and are able to parlay it. And both of those guys came out of a punk rock background and, and kind of got the rock style marketing, um, that has been successful in the States, whereas dance style marketing has struggled since the disco era. So, um, you know, it just, it just kind of, things came together in in the, in the mid two thousands and, and Daft Punk at Coachella in 2006 is obviously enormous. And then, um, you know, you get things like the song uh, I'm going to play now, which is the Swedish House Mafia, Don't You Worry Child by 2012, uh, hitting at number six on the American pop charts. Let's hear it. This is the Swedish House Mafia, Don't You Worry Child. That was the Swedish House Mafia's "Don't You Worry Child" from 2012, and um, we kind of picked that because neither of us really could face playing David Guetta. <laughs>
2: But but it's, I mean it's important to note that that without David Guetta the Swedish House Mafia wouldn't have been able to have that success because in 2009 it was David Guetta who worked with Kelly Rowland of uh, was it TLC was she a part of TLC or what was Beyonce's uh, pre Beyonce group Destiny's Child so there we comes go through with the yeah, save yes yeah.
0: yeah. so yeah so so Kelly Rowland of Destiny's Child and David Guetta and he and he you know that one actually bubbled under it, it was. Um, Uh, was it Hot Bitch, I think was the one that broke through um, with the rapper that he worked with. But, you know, he worked with Madonna, Rihanna, Snoop Dogg, the Black Eyed Peas. And it's interesting when you look at his wiki, he had this this run of tracks that is like number one or definitely in the top ten everywhere in the world except the States. And it and, and would just be blanked in the States. And it wasn't until that Kelly Rowland track that got him in the lower ranges of the charge, charts. And then he breaks through after that. And um, yeah, just absolutely broke through. They also rebranded the genre. It had been a number of things, house, techno, electronica. And then they, they finally just called it EDM, electronic dance music. And that was the rubric under which it, it broke through.
2: And well, it, really, it really took that magical combo, though, of, 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 of already established uh, music industry, established artists like Rihanna and Kelly Rowland. Uh, they they would get the electronic music producers in to produce these tracks. And then those tracks would be taken and pumped out on those massive established distribution channels. So in that way, dance music was basically allowed to break through uh, through, you know, Rihanna and Kelly Rowland already kind of having that R&B uh, staple, and all of a sudden you being able to play this kind of dance music on R and B stations, and all of a sudden it starts to work, and you see see how it all kind of falls into place, at, at least as far as the mainstream is concerned.
0: Yeah, absolutely, and also we should we should point out, and they didn't mention this in the book, but I think producers like the Neptunes and Timbaland that were working in hip hop had been picking out of the EDM orchard for a while. And so so people's ears were kind of primed to hear this stuff. Like the the hip hop producers had had their ears to the ground and and picking up. And you know, that goes back to hip house in the late 80s. Like the the there's always and and all the way back to the 70s hip hop emerges out of the same scene as as house and garage and techno and everything else. So these genres are cousins even though they've gone in different directions so it's pretty easy to go back and cross-pollinate to bring in a hip-hop performer or a hip-hop savvy R&B performer um, like Kelly Rowland because you know R&B figured out how to deal with hip-hop with New Jack Swing in the in the early 90s and the two genres you know with the whole neo-soul movement in this era and the 90s, uh, R&B and hip-hop were very comfortable with each other and and like I said, this kind of pop um, uh, amoeba was just absorbing everything by this point. And so, uh, you know, dance music just poured new beats in there. And, and, you know, even people like Skrillex, it started out as this very, oh, you know, dubstep, so radical and hardcore. And then it took a very short period of time before he's doing crossover collaborations as well. And then these massive festivals, you know, Electric Daisy, Electric Zoo, the Ultra Festival, um, it, it, it just primes a pump. And so by 2011, the Swedish house mafia is selling out Madison square garden, you know, home of the foo fighters and, and cheap trick and classic rock, uh, like kiss going back to the day. So this stuff just absolutely broke down the doors and just became part of the mix. Do you feel like it's kind of fallen off? Like, it seems to me, like post say 2015, the shine was kind of off EDM and the pop thing moved on to other stuff.
2: I mean, I think it's a, a similar uh, discussion as to what we said happened to Chicago, where it's like the the the, the eye of the mainstream might have moved off of it, but there's still a lot going on. There's more festivals than ever in the U.S. I, I subscribe to this guy named the Festive Owl on uh, on Facebook, and I see constant uh, updates to to massive festivals in states all across America that that are you know uh, thirty thousand, sixty thousand person festivals, uh, with, with, you know, hundreds of DJs and, uh, you know, the business is bigger than it, than it ever was. And if mainstream isn't paying attention to it as, as much as it, it used to, it's because they've already conquered it. And, and they've already established it and now they're just moving on to newer ground. But I mean, as far as I can see COVID uh, notwithstanding, uh, the scene is only getting bigger and bigger. I mean, uh, the book kind of talks about how big stadium shows became hard to bust. And it's not so much that I think the the quote that they use was a thousand kids in the desert is bustable, but 50,000 in a state in a, in a stadium is bankable. Yeah. And that's, that's <laughs> kind of, that's kind of what happened, uh, is, is that, you know, uh, they're they're now being organized by big companies that are allowed to do it, what they want as usual in capitalist America. Sorry, I'm, I'm a Canadian. I'm slightly left here. Uh, it's <laughs> like ru- rules for thee, not for me. Once you go far enough up the, the industry ladder, permission is no longer something you need to ask. No one is looking to arrest Live Nation for throwing a rave um so uh, at, yeah. at a cer- at a certain point uh they stopped fighting it and they started embracing it and uh, and again in in north america now everybody is trying to market off of it so it's become something that is acceptable economic activity as opposed to before where it was deviant behavior
0: yeah absolutely and something similar happened with rock music You know when those big festivals happened, like in 1967, the London police are arresting the the Rolling Stones pretty regularly. And you know after they do the 1969 free concert at Hyde Park and half a million people showed up, the authorities just kind of threw in the towel and said we can't go up against this. Similarly in the states with Woodstock and Monterey Pop and and you know the massive festivals in the Midwest, there's just a certain point where the authorities throw up their hands and say, well I guess this is the mainstream now. Yeah, you can't bust a whole stadium full of people. And once the revenue is not in the tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands, but in the millions of dollars, you know, (laughs) the big dogs are going to grab that and and the big dogs know how to change the rules and, and make it all happen. So any final points we want to make on the, the super superstar DJ, the book goes back and has a little section called the pedestal where they kind of bemoan the fact that as soon as the DJ booth was lifted above the crowd. And initially the idea was so the DJ could see the audience and really have keep his finger on the pulse, but that inevitably creates this separation and this idol, which they felt like went against the beauty of disco, which was to break down that rock star distance between the audience and the performer. And so that, you know they're kind of sad for missing the whole dance floor unity and equality
2: is it lost i i mean I, I see see what they're saying but at the same time you can't argue against success and uh to me as a dj i think it's good because there's more gigs and more money out there for than ever before and anybody with enough talent and chutzpah but can chase it and, and get some of it so in, in that way it's like you can be romantic about it. the old days but, but I mean, uh, you know, uh, a lot of those old DJs died broke and, and this book is one of the few places where you'll read about them. So the new model I think, uh, is, is better for the DJ at the very least. And, yeah. uh, and, 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 and to me, I think it's, it's part of that all encompassing uh, DJ as an artist, you, you need this scene and you need that elevation and you, and they deserve to be treated like, like an artist. And, uh, if we, you know, we could have a whole discussion about, you know, the appropriateness of idolization and deification of artists and stuff like that. But I mean, to me, it's, it's just a matter of factor. Can you do what you love in today's society? And I say that now it's a better time for DJs than it's ever been.
0: Awesome. Glad to hear it. So that wraps up our discussion of DJ superstars. And next week we'll wrap up our discussion of last night. A DJ saved my life. The history of the disc jockey by Bill Brewster and Frank Broughton with the discussion of their final chapter sellout. So looking forward to that. Thanks Ryan.
2: Thank you.
1: Follow the letter roll podcast on Twitter at let it roll Cast, and check out our website at letterrollpodcast.com. roll Nate and Ryan will be back next week to continue their discussion of Last Night a DJ Saved My Life, The History of the Disc Jockey by Bill Brewster and Frank Broughton. They'll be covering the last chapter of the book, which questions whether or not the mass success of electronic dance music represents a sellout of the fundamental values of the DJ. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at w last night a dj saved my life the history of the disc jockey is published by grove press please support our show by ordering via the amazon referral link on our website let it roll